we really try and get inside the mind of our customers because they are the lifeblood of everything that we do. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 38, and today's guest is Nate Checkets. Nate is the co-founder and CEO of Roan, a men's lifestyle apparel brand. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nate Checkets, the co-founder and CEO of Roan, a men's performance lifestyle brand founded in 2014. Prior to Roan, Nate worked for and consulted with some of the biggest technology and entertainment properties in the world, including Cisco, the National Football League, Legends, Fan Vision, and Sport Radar. Nate's also an avid entrepreneur who founded and launched four companies before the age of 30, including Roan and Manja Technologies, whose patents were later acquired by the San Francisco 49ers. In 2020, Nate was selected by the Sports Business Journal to their 2020 list of 40 leaders under 40. In addition to Roan, Nate also serves as chairman of the board to Beyond Type 1, a nonprofit dedicated to the community of those with type 1 diabetes. Nate graduated from Brigham Young University with a BA in finance. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. I, I really appreciate it. We're recording this uh, at the end of May. Uh, seemingly, the world is, is getting back to uh, some sense of normalcy. Uh, how are you and your family doing? We're doing great. Thanks for asking. In fact, I'm, I'm in my office today, and um, you know, because of the new CDC guidelines, um, we're allowing people to come back in, and if they're vaccinated, they don't have to wear masks, which has been great. Still optional for people to come in, but it does feel like really within the last week or two, the world has, has started to reopen back up in a, in a big way. Well, that's great. I'm glad that, uh, that you guys are doing well. Uh, we like to start these uh, shows kind of setting the table for folks that you know may not know you, may not know your background, perhaps uh, a, a quick overview of your uh, where you grew up. I know you came from a big family, come from a big family. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but despite that, I have, have not become a Boston sports fan much to my own uh, chagrin because they've been quite good over, over the course of my lifetime. Um, but we quickly moved to Salt Lake when I was about two and a half, uh, moved to Connecticut when I was about eight years old and mostly grew up in the Northeast. And yeah, come from a big family. There's six kids. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the third of six, four boys, two girls. And um, I just have the best parents in the world and have, uh, have great siblings who are still my closest friends. So. Lot, lots of things we could go into on the growing up years, but that's a, that's a very high level. So you, you mentioned your parents. Uh, I certainly don't know either of your, your parents. Um, I know of your dad. Um, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I live in New Jersey now. I'm a big Knicks and Rangers fan. My, my son lives in Hoboken. He's 27 now and, and grew up 
a huge Knicks fan in the years that your dad was, uh, I guess, general manager and then ultimately president. And maybe you'll tell us about your dad briefly, because uh, I think that's a really you know, fun part of uh, your story. My dad was a sports executive for the majority of his career. He started at, uh, at Bain and Company. And when he was there, Bill Bain was looking to buy the Boston Celtics. And uh, my dad had played college basketball. Not many consultants have, have played college basketball. And I think he was the only one at Bain. And so he got assigned to put a valuation on the Celtics to understand what they were worth, what um, Bill should be willing to pay. And in that process, he met with the then deputy commissioner, a man by the name of David Stern. And, uh, and they built a great relationship. And Mr. Stern could not believe that he was from uh, the small town of Bountiful, Utah. And at the time, the Utah Jazz were about $10 million in debt. They were owned by um, a guy named Sam Battistone. You know, they were, they were, they were not doing well. They weren't, they weren't very well received in a city, in a town where People loved college sports, you know, BYU, University of Utah, football and basketball were everything in the state of Utah and the jazz just were not, not doing very well. But uh, Mr. Stern was impressed and introduced my, my dad to Sam Battistone and Sam ended up hiring him at the ripe old age of 28 to become the general manager of the Utah Jazz. And I think still to this day, yeah, he's the youngest NBA general manager in, in, in history. He was kind of like the Theo Epstein of, of that era for basketball. And it was amazing to grow up that way. So he was with the Jazz for six or seven years and then left to go run NBA International um, in New York. And after being at NBA at the league offices for a little over a year, the Garden tapped him to come in and be the president of the Knicks. And then eventually the president of the Garden could not ask for uh, a more fortunate way to grow up and, and attend so many sports games, and especially because the Garden was just rocking during the 90s. I mean, the Rangers were good. They won the Stanley Cup in 94. The Knicks were good. They made the NBA Finals twice, Eastern Conference Finals a couple times. Um, just great rivalries. Like, they were, they were always in the playoffs. I mean, what I, I was telling my son last night is, like, this is the first time I've been excited about a Knicks potential playoff run in 20 years. They've been, I think they've been to the playoffs. He left in 2001. I'm not saying this is because of him or it's just kind of the, the timeline, but he's been gone for 20 years. I think they've made the playoffs twice since then and maybe won one playoff series. Yeah, their last win was 2013. Yeah, so, so it's just pretty incredible. Um, the decade, the kind of 12 years that he was involved with um, – with that entity and uh, and what they what they did and accomplished during that time and um, obviously very much a team effort. But I was I always tell people to call a spade a spade. I I attribute any success or good fortune I have to my parents. And the only mistake that people make is they don't give my mom nearly enough credit. But I was very fortunate and still unfortunate to my dad's the first person I call when I'm having a challenge and we talk about you know how how to handle things. So been a great blessing in my life. Very nice. And when, when you talk to your dad, you can tell him that you talk to a big time Nixon Ranger fan, um, that he brought many smiles to my, uh, to my face over the years. And, and I will also say knowing that sports is, you know, kind of a, a tough environment. I, I always had the perception that he did it with class and dignity and professionalism. That was something that's been missed 
perhaps at the garden for a long time. So just thank them for me, if you I don't will. mind. Sure. That's kind of you to say. Tell us, uh, you know, you went to BYU, finance major, Manja Technologies, just high level. What was that about? Yeah. So really, when I was at school, I came back to New York for a summer internship, and I noticed that all of these analysts, consultants um, were using this new service. This was like 2005 called Seamless Web, you know, and at the time it was uh, it was just a website. You could go and you could order food. It would be prepared. It would actually get faxed to the local restaurants and they would either then deliver it to you or you could go and pick it up. And I was like, this is amazing, but why wouldn't you be able to do this on your phone? So I came back and wrote a business plan for it. You know, this is well before her. You know, there's so many services now. You've got DoorDash and Postmates and, um, and Grubhub and, and Seamless, which still exists, but now it's just called Seamless. And we built one of the first iPhone applications. And, uh, and then we quickly decided, you know what? This is really, really hard to grow these two markets. You, know, you have to grow customers and you have to grow restaurants. And in order to attract restaurants, you have to have a big enough user base. And in order to attract users, you have to have a big enough base of restaurants to order from. We decided to pivot and focus on something that I knew growing up, which was sports arenas. Great thing about a sports arena or a stadium is you generally have one restaurant vendor that's managing kind of all of the food and concession delivery. So you can set up one group and then you have this targeted group of 15 to 60,000, depending on the stadium. And this was a user acquisition strategy that would then you know, give us the ability to turn it into opening up cities. We ended up signing up about 15 buildings and we ran into a ton of issues around the technology side of it. Most of these stadiums and arenas were not prepared for the rise of the smartphone and how much data and bandwidth was being used. People couldn't download the application. We um, invented all of this interesting IP around natural language processing and back-end kitchen point-of-sale integration. It was so, oh my gosh, it was like one challenge after another and really was not uh, a big success by any stretch of the imagination. But what we had done is we had created some really interesting IP in the space. And um, the 49ers were in the process of building Levi Stadium they wanted to be the most advanced, um, you know, it's in, it's in the heart of Silicon Valley, the most advanced stadium in the world. And so they bought our IP and I stayed on and consulted with them and helped them on some of their really impressive uh, technology that they brought to the market there. So now you show up, I mean, they were the first stadium to accept e-tickets um, in a big way. Uh, you can see the, how long the line is uh, of the restroom, you know, give it kind of a green, yellow, red. Um, you can get pickup or delivery of, of food and um, concessions. And certainly the connectivity in the building was really interesting. And so it was a great experience. Um, and uh, I deferred going to a, a well-paying job out of, out of undergrad to go this crazy entrepreneurial route, much to my parents' um, strong opposition. And yeah, it really kind of started me on this path of, of startups and entrepreneurship. Yeah, you know, the, uh, part of the, the the premise of what we do at the marketing uh, playbook here is we try to give people, you know, a couple of takeaways that they can take back to their personal or, or business lives. So there's a good one for our listeners, you know, sometimes follow your heart, not necessarily the, you know, the more pragmatic 
uh, approach. And in, in your case, it obviously uh, did pretty well. It's funny, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, having connectivity in buildings. I remember back uh, going into the garden and, and, you know, you could stand out on 7th Avenue, you could get all the bandwidth that you wanted. As soon as you stepped in that building, it, it was Gone. a dead zone. There was nothing. Yeah. You couldn't even, you know, you couldn't text uh, even back then. Well, and it was even worse than that because you'd have buildings that were named the Verizon Center or AT&T and, <laughs> right. and, and you'd get inside those buildings and these buildings are named after uh, these impressive uh, connectivity services and you still couldn't use it. The high mesh density wireless solutions that now exist were so nascent back in those days. But it, it, you know, to, your, to your point of the takeaway, I don't think it's uncommon uh, in fact, I've seen it to be quite more common. When you have a parent who's had success and they've done something risky, they know how hard it is and they don't want that for their children because they're like, you know, I, the amount of time, I mean, even when I was starting Roan, my dad was like, the clothing business is such a hard, it is so hard. And the truth that I think I've found is every industry is really hard. I don't think there's an easy industry that just doesn't exist. But you have to feel like it's the right thing. You have to fall in love with it. You have to be passionate about it. And then, yeah, you got to be willing to work through the fact that everything is a little bit challenging and hard. This idea that you're going to find some magic. Like, I love it when I hear people talk about crypto or NFTs now. Or like, it's like printing money. I'm like, for right now, it's going to get harder. And there's going to be a lot of people that lose it. It's a zero-sum game. So it's just everything. everything is challenging. Good points. So you you um, made the Manja move, and then ultimately you went on to the NFL to serve uh, in a role there in in biz dev. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, kind of before starting Manja, over the course of the summers, my mom had kind of challenged me to to help earn some of the money to pay for the sports camps that I wanted to attend to. My parents, you know, even though my dad had been successful, they were very focused on. We always had hours of Saturday jobs every single week. I remember telling my friends, like, I can't come over. I've got to finish my Saturday jobs. They're like, what do you mean your Saturday jobs? Like, what, you know, I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut. It's not exactly like an industrial farm town or something. So they were just very focused on that. So in order to earn some money, I started mowing lawns. Uh, I decided to start a sports camp in my parents' backyard to teach kids how to play sports and like charge parents for it. And I didn't even tell my parents about it. I just when started handing flyers out at little league games and then parents were calling my mom and saying like, is this, is this happening? And, you know, to my mom's credit, she was so great about it. She helped to help me get that off the ground. The camp ended up running for eight years. My two younger brothers ran it. But in the process of that, I ended up meeting someone whose two sons came to the summer camp, a guy named Brian Rolap, who uh, many now consider to be the heir apparent to Roger Goodell at the league. But at the time he was a very young uh, executive at NBC. After this experience with Manja, I reached out to a lot of people and Brian was one of the guys that I reached out to. And he um, asked me if I would consider interviewing for this one position because he thought it was a really interesting fit given I had just spent the last three to four years focusing on the intersection between sports and technology. And uh, I actually said, I don't think it's a good fit. You know, I was starting to consult. I was making much better money and working about half the hours that I had in a startup. And I called my dad up and I said, hey, I had this really cool conversation. Um, he invited me to interview. He's like, well, what did you say? I was like, I told him I didn't think it was a good fit. 
in more words and in a more tactful way, he basically told me it was a really dumb move and I should, I should absolutely go take him up on it. So I flew out to New York, interviewed and went through, I think, four or five rounds of interviews and ultimately got a job to run um, the new business development strategy there. Um, and uh, it was a great experience, worked with a lot of really, really smart and talented people and learned a lot in, in that process. Interesting path to getting there, um, perhaps uh, even more interesting than maybe some of the things that you were doing there. It's, uh, the, the path was great. So what, what was your charge? As any sports league, you have sponsors, right? And the NFL has lots of sponsors, but Commissioner Goodell had charged the sponsorship group with doubling our sponsorship revenue by the year 2020. Kind of funny how that ended up happening. They were very focused on not becoming the NASCAR where you would see logos all over the field. My charge was to focus on the strategy. How are we going to double our revenue without doubling the number of clients? And so I started at the category list level. What we built out is there was, you know, I said, how are we making decisions on how we bring in a sponsor or a partner? And it's like, well, there's the airline category, there's the banking category. I just did like basic consulting work in the beginning where I asked lots and lots of questions. And I found that there was all this institutionalized approach uh, to solving this problem. So if we, if we have a banking partner, it's Wells Fargo, and then all of a sudden Wells Fargo doesn't want to pay the you know, X million dollar fee that we're charging, then we're going to go and we're going to pitch Bank of America and you know, Chase and, um, and these others until we get someone to, to bite on it. But the truth is, is that there were a lot of categories that were either too big, too expansive, and we could kind of slice them up finer and offer them to more partners, you know, without kind of giving anything up. And there were categories that we could offer that were purely um, valuable from a business to business perspective, meaning um, we sold a sponsorship to a company called NetApp and NetApp provides uh, digital storage solutions for companies where you can kind of store all of your media. And what they wanted is they wanted to be able to tell people that they provided the solution for the NFL. And that's what was valuable to them. They didn't need a logo on the field. They needed a logo in their pitch deck when they're going and they're pitching big companies to say, guess who we handled this for? We handled it for the National Football League. And they wanted some, you know, things like tickets to a game and unique experiences. So we could do that. We could increase the client size list without increasing the visibility exposure. And so by putting together a playbook, you know, to, to use uh, your word, it helped us get a lot more thoughtful. We took the technology, there's a category that was literally called the technology category. And that was like the first thing that I zeroed in. I was like, wait, there's one category for just everything technology related. They're like, yes, it's I, you know, IBM has that deal. And I was like, and they're paying basically the same as somebody who sells like potato chips. They're like, yeah, that's right. Like that doesn't make any sense to anybody who knows anything about technology. There's about 5,000 categories just in this one category. Let's figure out what the right micro categories are and how we go out and we sell them. We ended up, I think, tripling the size of that category um, just by being a little bit more thoughtful about how we split it up. So there were, you know, that was, that's where I spent most of my time. Um, and I really enjoyed working with our sales team who was going out and pitching it and then working with our servicing team to service the existing sponsors.
Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. So your parents tell you that the apparel business is really tough and you take all of your interest and and information that you've learned and you decide to start an apparel company called Roan. You can see behind you, you have a sign, Roan Cold Fusion, a breakthrough fabric technology. So tell us about Roan and and what your, your grand plan for it was when you started. Yeah, I mean, really, it wasn't my vision. I, what happened is, is I was commuting into the city to work at the league. Uh, the hard thing for me is I was, I was kind of miserable like six months in. And I had a lot of guilt about it because I knew I had a great job and I had a job that a lot of people coveted. And, and yet, after working in a startup for three or four years, it's a very different environment to move to a corporate office. And so I remember kind of I had this aha moment where I was like, you know what? I really am. I'm just an entrepreneur. Like I need the freedom. I need the flexibility to go and build something that didn't necessarily exist before. That's what drove me. And I remember I wrote specifically down, I want to build a brand that matters. And once I decided that, once I kind of like locked in that that's what I wanted to do, it made me change the way I like my ears perked up on certain things. So We'd be in meetings and I'd hear somebody who had done something at once upon a time. I'd say, I want to talk to that person. I want to learn more. The thing with Roan is my brother-in-law had this idea, saw the market opportunity. He worked in kind of the um, hedge fund world, but his primary focus was on investing in retail. And so he said, there's this really weird gap in the market where when you compare men's and women's activewear, you know, the majority of men's activewear is being serviced by these companies that distribute primarily through wholesale. So Nike, Reebok, Adidas, Under Armour, and they're within plus or minus 5% of each other in terms of their price index, how they typically price their products. They're all very competitively priced. But you have this new cohort of apparel makers that are primarily focused on women's. So 80 plus percent of their sales are focused on women's. And their primary method of distribution is direct to consumer. And they're generally at a 40% price premium to these men's companies. This new cohort directly distributed, focused on women's at a price premium using premium fabrication is not replicated on the men's side yet. And it feels like it's going to be. And so he and I just started spending time on it. And for me, it was initially just scratching this entrepreneurial itch. I actually thought I can still have a 401k. I can still go to the league office and, and feel really good about the work that I'm doing. And like, I can just do this on the side and feel like I'm kind of scratching that entrepreneurial itch. He approached me and asked me if I would go and, and run it. And I kind of resisted for a long, long time um, because I was so scared. I was nervous that I, would, that I wasn't ready to go back and do it again. And eventually I just realized I was so much happier the time that I was spending on that than the time that I was spending on, on my day job. And I didn't feel good about that and so I, I made the switch and it's been quite the journey. So you must have been right about you know the market assessment because now there's you know a number of players in your space that you compete with. Yeah. Talk you, you started digitally native. Uh, what are the other channels that you sell in today? 
we we do have a wholesale channel. Um, we sell to Nordstrom. We sell to Peloton. We're Peloton's biggest biggest men's brand now. We sell to um, to Equinox and have a great business there. You know, places like Barry's Bootcamp and just great wholesale accounts that we're very very selective about who we work with. But unlike most of these other businesses where wholesale was 80% of their business, for us it's 15 to 20% of our business. And um, we also have our own retail stores, which uh, we have five now. Um, just opened one in Boston on Newberry Street, and uh, we have three in New York, and then one in Connecticut. Um, we've got more on the way, but that's been fun. So we consider ourselves an omni-channel uh, retailer, you know, through multiple channels of distribution, which I think is really the future of of commerce. You hear so much about these kind of pure digitally native brands who are only DTC, but I think the reality is for most companies and most brands that having uh, an omni-channel approach is, is the best way because uh, it allows you to get in front of more customers without having to only acquire customers online, which has gotten far more competitive and is far more expensive than it was 10 to 12 years ago, even five years ago. Yeah. And privacy rules changing, making it more complicated and difficult, you know, right? Yeah. The new iOS update and Ultimately, it's good for the consumer, but it, it does make it challenging to, to acquire and grow a customer base. Yeah, absolutely. You, you talk about wholesale, and I, I've had this conversation. You know, I've lived it myself and, and talked to others like you. Storytelling is such a big part of your business and, and the story that you create about your products. Does it worry you You know, when you're dealing with wholesale? Maybe it's not such a big deal because it's only 15%, but you know, when you're selling wholesale, it's kind of harder to manage the storytell through somebody else selling your product. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely worry about that a, a lot. And um, I think that's why we're so selective about who we choose to work with. Because, you know, for all of the stores that don't take great care of their customers and, and don't work hard to make, you know, to try and create the same customer experience that we work so hard for, you know, there are companies like Nordstrom, which are known for having great customer service, um, great return management solutions, kind of have this attitude of hugging your customer. I think the best way to, to guard against it is, is to not sign up for an account you don't believe has that same level of values. We recently, you know, about a year ago, turned down a $12 million opportunity because we did not believe that it was the right thing for our brand, our position, or for how we would be communicating with a customer. And that was really, really hard, you know, because those are real dollars and you're growing and you're trying to grow an audience. But it's uh, it's something that we believe very strongly in. Yeah, you know, you you talk about um, you know your your perception in the in the market and and also you know corporate culture. Um, I've I've heard you uh, do some other shows and you talk about you know Roan is committed to the committed. Um, maybe talk about that a bit. I think part of what we wanted to do is we wanted to build a brand that would resonate with certain people and um, with our core customer base and and for me one of the things that my parents really emphasized to us all the time was this idea of like, just being all in in what you do. If you're going to do it, do it the right way. And we know that it's an interesting time to be a guy in, in, in human history. Every single year and day, there are stories of men who have behaved really poorly and these guys deserve to be brought to justice and to light. And I think it's very, very positive, but in the same breath, we know that there are good men who, 
do good things, who are committed to their jobs, who are committed to their families, and who are committed to their communities and doing the right thing. You know, the, it's become cliche now, but the idea of playing hard and working hard and kind of just living all in, you know, that line, by the way, comes from my brother, Ben, who's our creative director. And it's just something that really resonates with me is this idea of like, you're committed to living, you know, to living well and to just being all in, to take care of your body, to take care of your job, to take care of, I can imagine for you, Mark, like the world didn't need another podcast, right? But you decided to go and do it and you work hard at it and, you know, you're, you're preparing for it. And I got the materials and the questions and you are all in on it. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to take that level of risk. And we just felt like their every single activewear brand was focused almost entirely on physical performance. Whereas we felt like that is one part of who we are and it's not even the most important part. It's kind of everything else in our life that we wanted to build a brand that would resonate with people on. Yeah, you also, there was another line that also resonated with me along the same you know concept. You want kindness and good people. And you know you just don't hear about that a lot anymore. That is commendable. We've obviously talked about COVID a little bit. Um, you know, at the beginning, you know, we've been at this now 15 months. I'm sure there's a lot of things that you did differently at the very beginning when this started. Some of which I'm imagining worked really well and will continue as part of the fabric of running your business. Can you talk about a few of those things, perhaps? I mean, I think the first and most important thing that we did is we really focused on shoring up our team and making sure that they were taken care of and that they they knew that we were gonna we were gonna work through this and we were gonna be really committed. It was interesting. We 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 asked this, we sent out this survey quarterly called the Q12 survey. And uh, it's 12 questions. It's just a check-in with our team. You know, we kind of have very high marks on kind of employee satisfaction. Um, and we have high targets for those marks. And what was interesting is like many companies in those early days, we actually cut salaries. I mean, I cut my salary really dramatically and, and almost everybody took at least a 10% pay cut. Some people took uh, more than that. And in that process, what we had is higher scores, higher performance of employee satisfaction while taking a pay cut, um, which is something that I think I was really, really grateful for. So that was kind of the first and, and most important thing. The, the second thing that I think we did that um, was helpful is we really try and get inside the mind of our customers because they are the lifeblood of everything that we do. And I don't know if you remember this, but at the beginning of the pandemic, any brand that you had spent more than five minutes with and they had your email was sending you an email of like, here's how we're handling COVID-19. The cynic in me was like, okay, that's great. I'm glad that you are sending me an email to tell me that you're closing your stores. You know, you're kind of like patting yourself on the back for um, how you've handled this. But I don't really need to know that. And that doesn't necessarily make me think more highly of you as a brand because that's an expectation at this point. You should be taking care of your teams and your customers. And we, I got some internal pressure to be like, hey, everybody's sending this email. We have to send this email. And I remember thinking, but do you want another one of those emails? Like, do you want another one of those emails? And then I just challenged our team. I was like, what is the COVID email that you want to get? And like in two hours, we had brainstormed this like, Here's some recipes of things that you can make with stuff that's already in your kitchen so you don't have to go shopping. Here's great streaming shows that you can watch now that you, in theory, have more time to be watching it. 
here's 30 days worth of at-home workouts that you can do. We sent it out and the subject line was not another COVID-19 email. And at the very top, it said, if you're interested to know how we're taking care of our team and how we're managing through the pandemic, you can click here. I'm gonna take you to a site where there was information on all the stuff that people were sending out. It's like, but this email isn't about us, it's about you and how you're feeling right now and what concern and how you're gonna handle yourself for what we thought was gonna be like a couple of weeks. We've never ever received a response like we did to that email because it was just like, thank you for thinking about me instead of thinking about yourselves. And I, I think that that's something that we've really tried hard to continue to focus on. You do a lot on your site. Um, you know, we talked about storytelling, um, a lot of content uh, under something called The Pursuit. Um, how did that start? I, I, I've been through it. I'm a, a follower. I'm a customer. There's a lot of effort that's going into that. Yeah, I give um, my brother Ben and, and our editor Jenny all the credit for that. It really, it just goes back to this premise of if a brand is a relationship, and I think that it is, then what kind of a relationship do we want to be for the customer? So many times the interaction is about what the customer can do for us. You can come buy this new stuff that we just released and you can come continue to support us and here's a discount and here's an, and it's like, that just is, if you think about that with any friend that you might have, if you had that kind of relationship, you wouldn't be friends with that person for very long. We really try and challenge ourselves. What can we do to help our customer? What are they worried about? What are they stressed about? What do they want to read about? And not to have that editorial be influenced by a need to sell advertising dollars, which every other you know, media company is heavily, like we have a core business and our core business covers you know, the ability for us to do this. Let's just offer great content that we think is highly relevant to our customer base. And if we do that, you know, that has all these net benefits. But the main thing is that people understand more who we are as a brand and a desire to associate with it by how we communicate with them. And we're not perfect, but I think, I think we've, we've, uh, we've made great strides there and it's, it's really helped us in a lot of ways. You, you started a meeting early on. I think you talked about the POMS meeting. I thought that was interesting. What was that? We, for people in the apparel industry, this meeting generally exists, but as a startup, we were kind of like figuring out everything out um, on our own. So POM stands for product operations, marketing, and support. And what we were trying to do is we were trying to really like align all of our teams internally in a way that um, we could react as the customer's life was changing because every single week it felt like there was a new crisis or a new challenge that was impacting the way people were living and our marketing needed to adjust, our, um, our voice needed to be sensitive to situations going on, and our product needed to make sure that it was meeting the demands of what the customers were facing. Uh, that meeting has continued to evolve. It's my favorite meeting of the week. I absolutely love it. I do far less talking than I used to because we have much smarter people uh, than I, and, and every week what I do is I actually get on a treadmill, I watch it and I listen and I participate, and I'm like just zeroed in on that meeting because it's. It's the meeting that drives the whole business, but it's, it's something we weren't doing pre-pandemic. 
Let me ask you one really tactical question. And, you know, sure. you know, sometimes in a podcast, it's hard to do it, but, and, and it comes up in a lot of the marketing conversations and it's the, the whole issue around media mix and attribution and, you know, really how you guys think about where you're going to spend your next marketing dollar. Yeah. How does that conversation happen internally? We've started to focus a lot more on kind of trying to get the attribution right. And so from a tactical level, Every time you spend a dollar in any advertising medium, the method by which you advertise, let's say that it's Facebook, will come back to you and tell you how effective that dollar was. And that's generally what attribution is about. This dollar generated this result, or this sale was generated by this advertising medium. But the truth is, is that advertising is really complex. You might see an ad on Facebook, but then Google Roan, and click through Google. Well, who gets the credit for that? Is it Facebook or is it Google? Is it both? Or maybe you're watching CNN and one of our TV ads show up and you end up going directly to the site. Who gets the credit for that? Where's the attribution on that? So we've built an internal um, attribution model based on you know, now years of spending that helps us better calculate the effectiveness of these channels. And this isn't news for you, Mark, but for, for anybody listening, you have your marketing funnel, right? The, and it works like anything in life. You've got the top of funnel. These are people who show level of interest, the middle of the funnel, people that have maybe added an item to the cart. Um, and then the bottom of the funnel that where you're like kind of getting people all the way through to conversion. And um, you need to do two things. You need to get more people in the funnel and you need to widen the funnel so that the people that come through actually come all the way down. And so on the attribution side, we use a tool called Rockerbox that we really like. And, uh, and that tool helps us in, in kind of our attribution modeling. And um, we're kind of always measuring, checking, but we also try to not to get overly hung up on the metrics because what we have found is even in this world where we live in, where everybody's like, start with the data and with the data, the data will lie to you so much. Even as we, even as we zero in on our attribution modeling, like it's just not, it's imperfect. One of the mistakes that we made is we started hyper-focusing on channels where we had a clear return on ad spend we felt was, you know, kind of positive for the business. And we were neglecting areas where it was much harder to drive attribution that were more top of funnel activities. But if you starve the top of the funnel and you're only focused on mid and lower funnel, you might have this really efficient funnel, but eventually things, people aren't coming through the top. We have, you know, we have, we have meetings, we have tools. We, you know, we certainly spend a lot of time on it, but it's, uh, it's part art, it's part science. And uh, I, I think there are times that we're great at it and times where I'm like, we, we got a lot of work to do. Now, I think you explained it perfectly. And, you know, it's the single biggest issue that I think that I hear people talking about is, you know, where do I spend that, you know, that next dollar? It's a tough decision. And business is starving the top of funnel and then waking up one day and saying, geez, why don't we have more, you know, brand traffic? Why don't we have more ability to retarget? Uh, we're heading up to the uh, end of the show. I could sit here and talk to you all day because it's really interesting stuff that you're, you guys are doing. Um, we do this two-minute drill. We used, to, we used to run the two-minute drill in football all the time. So. Yeah. One or two-word answers. Uh, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Rivian. Oh, I don't know that brand. A new electric car company that uh, is getting their first models out this summer. But I just I love everything about the brand. I love what they stand for. I love how they communicate to their customer. Awesome. Great. Uh, favorite app on your phone? 
Uh, well, this is very personal, but it's uh, it's called Dexcom. I'm type one diabetic, and uh, that measures my blood sugar, so it's pretty important to me. The last website, other than Amazon and Roan, that you shopped from? Clean Simple Eats, um, which is a company I'm on the board of, but they make I think the best protein powder on the market, and I I just bought some yesterday, so I I'm obsessed with it. Okay, something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Just enjoying the present. Um, I feel like I'm always worried about the future and uh, and focused on the future and yeah, probably enjoying the present. I'm guessing this next one's going to be really easy for you. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Beyond Type 1, which I've now been involved with for three years. And I just, um, it's, an, uh, it's an amazing organization with great people. If you had one superpower, what would it be? The ability to go back and revisit and re-experience moments in my life. And last one, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Does this exclude animals too? <laughs> no. Hey, if it's an animal. I love, I love our, our, our puppy. Um, we've got a, we've got a beautiful golden named uh, Mia that is like everybody in the family loves her. So I'd have to, I'd have to say Mia outside of family. Okay. She kind of is family. So, I, so that's uh, almost cheating. Nate, let people know that are listening where they could reach out to you on social media if they'd like to. I'm active on LinkedIn and Instagram, and it's just Nate Checkets on both. Okay. Nate, this was really interesting. Um, I want all my listeners to know, you know I've uh, bought and, and worn Roan product. Uh, it's great. Uh, the, the fabrications are great. It wears well. It's fairly priced, really great brand. They, they're doing some great things. And uh, Nate, I really appreciate you spending the time and being so open about your business. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Nate Checkets for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, sometimes you just have to follow your heart. We heard Nate speak a few times about decisions that he made earlier in his life that might not have been the most pragmatic choices. He looked at his options and chose the one where he felt would be most fulfilled. It might not always work out as expected, but at least you can say that you pursued a dream. Number two, be all in. Once you choose a job or a task, give it your all. There might be others relying on you, so you can always make sure that give the best possible effort that you can. And number three, the day-to-day tactics matter and so do the details. Although not a new idea, Nate spoke about the POMS meeting that came out of the need to get the team together while all working remotely during the early days of COVID. That daily stand-up continues today and gives each member of the management team the opportunity to express what they're working on and where they might need help from others on the team. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. (laughs) 